the National Archives podcast series, Identity and Identity Theft, presented by Steve Hindle. On the 4th of August 1664, the Norfolk magistrate Robert Doughty of Hanworth delivered a charge to the quarter sessions grand jury, reminding them of the offences with which they ought, as the conscience of the country, (coughs) to be concerned. Now, jury charges were growing increasingly formulaic, uh, even predictable, over the course of the 17th century, and this makes the deviations from the conventional pattern all the more interesting. And amongst the most significant of these was the extended passage concerning the threat to social and political order posed by what Robert Doughty described as a new race of loose or runaway rogues who were never well fixed in any lawful course of life. These vagrants, he argued, regularly appeared on the doorsteps of respectable households, pretending themselves to be shipwrecked sailors or demobilized soldiers and pleading for charity and hospitality. If their credentials were questioned, Doughty thought, they would immediately produce testimonials, commonly called passes. Doughty urged his audience to be cautious of such documentation, which was, he insisted, all too frequently forged. False papers could be identified, he argued, by the unusually long time allowed for the vagrant to pass, travelling not at the 10 miles a day which might be expected if they went by the direct route, but two miles a day meandering across the countryside, by the bad English and unclerk-like hands they were written in, and by the false seals of the magistrates set or pretended to be set onto them. But false identity papers were not always that easy to detect, and Doughty felt it necessary to go into some detail about how exactly fraudulent identities might be constructed and documented amongst the wandering poor. Whereas authentic justice's seals consisted of coats of arms cut in silver, gold, steel or stone with a fair or even impression, forgeries either lacked heraldic symbolism altogether or had crests which were copied or cut from other documents. Forged seals would be set in wax, either so soft that it was easily defaced or so old and hard that it could scarcely be affixed to the paper. And there's a very long description in Doughty's address of the technicalities and mechanics of the production of forged identity documents and of the individuals who were capable of forging them. And unless apprehended, these professional criminals would get your money and filch your goods, sometimes distracting householders with hard luck stories and forged papers while their partners in crime rifled the property. And thus Doughty thought, in language that resonates through the history of welfare policy and criminal justice, they would find a more easy and profitable way to live than by working. Now, Robert Doughty's paranoia about an army of shiftless migrants tooled up with forged papers, tramping and stealing their way across the countryside, speaks to several issues which I'd like to pick up in the following discussion. First, the popular sense that migration, especially amongst the shiftless and idle, was pernicious to social order. Second, the attempt by the authorities of local and central government to regulate migration through the use of identity (laughs) papers of various kinds. And third, the attempts made to subvert these technologies of identification by the use of forgeries and counterfeits. 
Now, the framework for this analysis is one of the most significant and enduring projects in the history of English social welfare policy, the attempt to regulate the condition and conduct of the poor under the terms of the Elizabethan Poor Laws. Passed in 1598 and remaining on the statute book virtually unamended until 1834. These statutes encoded the ancient scriptural distinction between the deserving and undeserving poor and accordingly empowered the parish officers of each individual community to relieve the known neighbourhood needy in their own homes and the constables to expel wandering strangers back to the communities in which they'd last lived or worked. And this policy, of course, resonates with contemporary public policy issues. After all, contemporary political debates about immigration policy, and especially about the role of putative entitlement to social security benefits in encouraging applications for asylum in the United Kingdom, turn on precisely the same issues. Migrants represent both a reservoir of skilled and unskilled labour, without which economic development might be undermined, and at the same time, a potential drain on the resources of the welfare state. So just as 21st century Britain is struggling to resolve the paradox of international migration in the context of a national welfare system predicated on notions of social insurance, 17th century parishes wrestled with the problem of population turnover in a culture conditioned to believe that charity not only began, but also actually ended at home. So in the context of this tension between, on the one hand, a locally based social security system based on local resi long residence, and on the other, regional and increasingly national fields of migration in which large numbers of English men and women were almost constantly on the move, Elizabethan legislators experimented with various technologies of identification to help them distinguish between the worthy settled poor and the unworthy unsettled idle. In the period 1550 to 1750, four such technologies. The granting of licenses to beggars, the issuing of passports to vagrants, the collection of settlement certificates by parish officers, and the insistence that even the deserving poor wear badges were developed and applied. So in what follows, I want to take these four technologies in turn, analysing in each case their purpose, their format, and their use. I'll argue that many of the modern horrors, not only civil disobedience, but also the frauds of the double life and the imaginary person, anticipated by those who are opposed to the compulsory carrying of identity cards in the early 21st century, were prefigured in the administration of the poor laws in the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries. So what follows is, I think, unlikely to make happy reading for the Home Secretary, whoever has the misfortune to, un to occupy that unhappy office by the time I've finished. But how are we to be persuaded that databases identify us to be ourselves alone and no one else? So the first of our technologies is the licence to beg. Begging licences were the first of the technologies of identification to emerge in the early days of the Elizabethan Poor Law. Licensed begging was encouraged in various 16th century statutes, especially those of 1552, 1563, and even survived into the clauses of the Great Elizabethan Poor Law of 1598. Poor parishioners might be licensed to beg round all the parishes in the hundred or wapentake, a practice which prefigured the later development of the rate in aid, by which better off parishes might contribute to the relief of communities <coughs> overburdened with their own poor. 
The begging licence accordingly became popular with parish officers and prospective ratepayers alike as a way of regularising the relief of the deserving poor in any given community without resorting to compulsory local assessments to finance the parish-based welfare system. So licences like the one reproduced here, granted to Walter Foss of Horsford and Horsham St Faith in Norfolk in 1591, were usually engrossed on parchment rather than paper to make them more durable and to preserve the green wax magistrate seals which validated them. And you can't see from this reproduction particularly well, but the green wax seals would have been down the left-hand side of the document. These are the names of the two magistrates that granted the license. Unlike the two other documentary technologies with which I'll be concerned, licenses remained permanently in the custody of the individual pauper to whom they were granted. To judge by the condition of a set of licenses originating in late Elizabethan Norfolk, they were 12 by 8 inches at full size and folded down, usually lengthways and then two or three ways across, to 3 inches square. As a result, the outer surfaces and folds became particularly dirty and they become figurative for their dirt in uh, Elizabethan plays, for instance, in the end, at the end of the 16th century. At least one of the extant Norfolk licences actually has a second piece of parchment sewn into it to act as a protective cover. So you get the sense that this document would have been carried, used, produced. The usual format of the licence was to identify the pauper and her parish, to provide a brief gloss on the reason for her poverty, and to permit her to ask, gather, receive and take alms, charity and devotion at the house or houses of the inhabitants. In one sense then, the begging licence, remaining as it did in the hands of the poor person herself, conferred on the pauper eligibility for, arguably even entitlement to, the charity of her neighbours. The magistrates who issued them were nevertheless careful both to reserve the right of households to exercise discretion in distributing arms and to pre present the case for the recipient's moral worth. Licences of this kind were usually granted for a period of 12 months, after which time those who carried them presumably had to apply for a new one, probably surrendering the expired documents to the magistrates, and this probably accounts for the survival of this particular sample. Magistrates seem to have resorted to licence begging for fear of antagonising householders with compulsory rates, and in so doing they inadvertently preserved the doorstep as a liminal space between the needy and their, their more <coughs> prosperous neighbours. In most cases, those who begged were the familiar neighbourhood poor, making regular, if depressing, peregrinations from house to house. The forgery of begging licences seems to have been relatively rare, precisely because those licensed were invariably long-standing residents of the local community whose faces were very familiar to the inhabitants. In sum, a licence to beg was a testimonial of deservingness and served to, as invaluable coin in the currency of neighbourliness with which the deserving poor made shift to survive. The second of our technologies is the vagrant's passport. Even though vagrants' passports and beggars' licences were often confused in the popular mind, the vagrants' passport was altogether different in purpose. Whereas the licensed beggar was by implication deserving, the vagrant carrying a passport was by definition a criminal undergoing punishment. Passports were designed to ensure that those taken and punished, usually by whipping, as idle wandering beggars, were returned home and relieved along the route as appropriate, as appropriate to their parish of settlement.
The pass took the form of a warrant, signed and sealed, usually by two magistrates, which gave the vagrant's name and parish of settlement, recorded the location where she had been taken begging, and required the constables en route between that parish and the parish of settlement to conduct her on her way, relieving her as necessary as she passed. Finally, it stipulated the period of time, usually expressed as a number of days within which the journey should be made. The vagrant will be liable to punishment, usually a further whipping, only if she exceeded the specific time period or strayed from the appropriate course. So some indication of the format can be discerned from the figure up on the slide here. This is a Wiltshire example, the passport granted to Mary Walls, a poor vagrant cripple in 1652 requiring the constables of the parishes between St Bride's, London and Bath to conduct and relieve her en route. This is a paper document measuring 12 by 7.5 inches and the pass was repeatedly folded down to the size of 3 by 3.5 inches and was almost certainly carried in a pocket or purse. The constables generally seem to have unfolded it to half its full size and endorsed the top half of the verso. And as you can see here, there are 11 signatures on the verso as the officers of the parish state monitored uh, Mary's progress across the countryside. A bit difficult to see here, but we've got the names of individual constables of individual parishes, each signing off as she goes from parish to parish across the countryside. Now, the potential for abuse in this system is obvious. The vagrant poor were only too conscious of the utility of a passport, since it was the key to almost unhindered mobility and gave them the right to travel and to receive relief from officials along the way. There is, accordingly, plenty of evidence that vagrants with legitimate passports meandered rather than travelled by the most direct route. More striking still, however, is widespread suspicion about the development of a lively trade in counterfeit passports. Now, a counterfeit passport was not, it should be emphasised, intended to elevate the social status of the person who carried it, but to allow a vagrant to claim legitimate charity across a, across a geographical range that the counterfeiter, him or herself, might dictate. Now, it's easy um, to dismiss the paranoia about counterfeiting as sensationalism, perhaps even as moral panic. But the evidence suggests that the literary and elite anxieties about the scale of forgery were not unfounded. Under examination, some vagrants disclosed the circumstances in which their passports had been obtained. Robert Vaughan confessed in 1580 that he purchased his passport for fourpence from one David Jones at Great Dunmo in Essex. Indeed, there was apparently some price inflation in the costs of these forged documents, from between twopence and fourpence in the late 16th century to between sixpence and a shilling in the early 17th century. Humphrey Reed, ordered whipped in Salisbury in 1609, claimed that his passport had been made by a stranger under a hedge, although doubt was cast on this account by the fact that there was found about him a seal of his own carving. Indeed, it seems that counterfeit passes or the seals to affix to them could be brought almost anywhere, not least because so many of the forgers were themselves itinerant. The master forger of passports in Elizabethan Essex was Davy Bennett, who, it was reported in 1581, could counterfeit any magistrate's seal. If he seeth it in wax, he will lay it afore him and carve it out in wood very perfectly, and so he will do their hands for that which he writeth sundry hands, and hath most commonly about him a little bag of counterfeit seals. Whatever the rate of detection of documents forged by such men as Bennett, 
4% of those vagrants sent home from Salisbury in the first half of the 17th century were in possession of forged documents, and many a constable doubtless endorsed a passport in good faith, oblivious to the fact that the document was a forgery. Most identity theft therefore went unrecognised in the 17th century, much as it does in the 21st. Our third technology is the settlement certificate which was the most significant document produced by the system introduced in 1662 through which the relationship between migration and eligibility for parish relief was codified. Now the technicalities of this complex system need not detain us here, but suffice to say that after 1697 a person resident in one parish could and often did hold a settlement elsewhere and that the officers of the parish into which a migrant was moving usually demanded documentary proof of that settlement before they granted rights of residence to any newcomer. Proof came in the form of a certificate which guaranteed that the officers and ratepayers of the parish of settlement would relieve the pauper no matter where she actually lived, either in the parish of settlement itself or with increasing frequency as the decades passed in the parish of residence. So in this example, the parish officers of Newington in Oxford certify in 1747 that they acknowledge the settlement of Alexander Chalk and his wife Mary. The positive side of this development then was the possibility of non-resident relief, living in one place being relieved elsewhere, which seems to have developed as early as the 1690s. The disadvantage, especially from the point of view of the migrant poor, was that parishes would do all they could to expel any incomers who did not possess a settlement certificate from another parish, and were determined to prevent anybody who was likely to become chargeable from securing a settlement amongst them. The justices who signed settlement certificates do not seem to have kept them. Multiple signatures were needed, and since it was the parish rather than the county which acted as the unit of obligation and control, copies were of little or no value to magistrates themselves. Justices do seem, however, to have kept independent registers or short records of whom and for which parishes certificates had been issued. In most cases, the church wardens and overseers of the the community in which the pauper was resident asked the parish of settlement to provide them with a certificate and it was accordingly sent or delivered to the receiving parish. The pauper had the right to demand it, to actually see it, <coughs> but most parish officers clung on to it tenaciously for it ensured that they and their ratepayers would never be liable for this particular pauper. Settlement certificates were therefore intended to be delivered to the parish officers as soon as a migrant came into the parish. Sometimes, however, the pauper carried it with him to the new parish, showed it to the parish officers and kept it with him. And occasionally we do find evidence of paupers keeping them as family heirlooms to be passed on from generation to generation. Although such cases are rare, they do suggest that paupers were aware of the intrinsic value of such documents, which effectively conferve, conferred leave to remain. One might almost say, as it does on the modern passport, without let or hindrance in a foreign parish. The fourth document is the parish badge. The badging of the deserving poor was compulsory by law under statute of 1697. Paupers were to be denied relief unless they agreed to wear a badge of red cloth consisting of the initial letters of their parish of settlement, KP, for Kenilworth Parish in my case, on their left shoulder. Any parish officer who relieved a pauper who did not wear the badge could be fined 20 shillings. Although badges had been issued to beggars, sometimes in conjunction with begging licences in the 16th century, 
the motivation behind the late 17th century statute was not principally to identify, but rather to shame and deter the poor from seeking relief. Badges were supposed to humiliate paupers, marking them out as a separate and dependent class amongst whom idleness was inherited. Late 17th and early 18th century overseers accounts are replete with payments for the making of badges, usually for the purchase of the cloth and for the work of a tailor in cutting out the appropriate letters and sewing them on to paupers' clothing. It does not require much imaginative sympathy to vi visualise half a dozen elderly paupers gathered in the tailor's workshop as he did his work. At least the parish officers of Philongley in Warwickshire were sensitive to the potential volatility of this encounter when they badged the poor in 1697 and sought to mollify the paupers by providing them with ale while they waited. The badges produced by this primitive technology were little more than patches of canvas or felt and almost invariably perished when the clothing to which they were attached finally disintegrated. Just one example this is virtually unique, however, survives, and this is reproduced here. For some reason, the overseers of Rickall in the East Riding of Yorkshire kept an example of a parish badge, its livid red letters standing out starkly against the background of blue felt, alongside its associated justices warrant requiring the parish officers to badge all relief claimants in 1737. The point here is routinisation. We've got a printed warrant for the issue of parish badges in that part of East Yorkshire in the 1730s. As befitted a policy of deterrence, the logic of, ex of exemplary punishment was selectively applied to those who didn't wear the badge. The formula used to deprive the collectioners in Chalfont St Peter, Buckinghamshire, is laconic, though no less resonant for all that. Three widows who refused to wear the badge were noted as no badge this month, no pay. The preponderance of women amongst those who refused suggests there was a conspicuous lack of identity between, on the one hand, the targets of the discourse which condemned the culture of dependency, primarily young labouring men with families who preferred collection to labour, and on the other, the recipients of relief, as it was actually practised across thousands of parishes who were primarily widows, the majority of them elderly. To conclude, the technologies of identification discussed here were intended to regulate not only migration, but entitlement. Three of the documentary techniques with which we are concerned, licences, passports, certificates, essentially validated claims to certain rights, to charity, to welfare, to residence, to labour mobility, made by those who could not and in the case of passports, would not support themselves through their own efforts. In this respect, they resonate with issues, especially those concerning civil liberties and the very nature of citizenship, which are central to the contemporary debate about identity cards in the 21st century. The fundamental tension between parish-based poor relief and endemic population turnover provided the context for these 17th century experiments in the targeting of aid. Just as the modern impulse towards the certification of identity arises from concerns about the impact of global movements of workers and refugees on national systems of social security. In the 17th century, legislators gradually came to recognise that the relief of the poor in their own parishes could only function successfully if there were, success if there were sophisticated mechanisms both to regulate the rights of those who travelled across parish boundaries and to protect the interests of those who accommodated them. 
hence the introduction of the settlement laws in 1662. 21st century Home Secretaries are similarly driven to contemplate iris scans and ever more sophisticated databases by fears that various categories of visitors to these shores, including asylum seekers and economic migrants, will prejudice the security, rights and interests of taxpayers and benefit claimants alike. In the 21st century, the likely result is the more rigorous policing of international borders, as any of you who've tried to come through an airport recently will be aware. In the 17th century, the effect was the reinforcement of local thresholds of belonging, especially the parish boundary. Now, the resonances between 17th and 21st century debates about identifying poor migrants and relief claimants speak to more general long-term symmetries in the development of welfare and, indeed, of social policy as a whole. The not-so-hidden transcript of this discussion is that the technology of identification is not by any means the only issue about which current social policymakers seem to be talking a language which would have been familiar to their 17th century predecessors. The imperatives to transform welfare to work, the concern that poverty is an inherited, perhaps even a genetic condition, inculcated by feckless parents, the fear of a self-perpetuating culture of dependency in which households, perhaps even whole neighbourhoods, we call them sink estates, would rather accept handouts than shift for themselves. All these were no less characteristic of Stuart than of Blairite, to say nothing of Thatcherite political culture, and have therefore constituted an integral and enduring component of the rhetoric and repertoire of rule in England since the early modern period. Thank you. This event was recorded live as part of the Using Archival Sources to Inform Contemporary Policy Debates conference on the 17th of February 2010 at the National Archives, Q. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.